0: Well, welcome to uh, Eastlake, welcome to Eastlake Online, welcome to part three uh, in the series finale of a a series that we started a couple weeks ago called uh, Letters to Our Next President. Uh, The concept behind the series is that we have been writing uh, letters to our incoming president, kind of offering some advice or some thoughts or some whatevers. Uh, Just to give you a quick personal update, uh, we have received no response to our first two letters that we have uh, uh, sent that way. (laughs) Uh, but he's a little bit busy right now, so I totally understand. Um, but we're going to keep going with this as our last one. Um, if you're new to Eastlake or new to the series, again, open. It's, the idea behind this is really just open letters of advice. We've all seen open letters. We've seen them published in papers or newspapers uh, or magazines or I don't know, just things written uh, in in like a memoirs thing or open letters that were written to somebody addressed in a certain context, but there's value for us kind of peeking over the shoulder of either the author or the audience and saying, perhaps there's some advice in this for me as well. Um, I know this is practical advice for them in their context, but me kind of interpreting these through the lens of my circumstances, maybe I can walk away with some sort of advice. Um, These show up a couple of times in the Old Testament. Specifically, we've said... The Old Testament is unique. Your Bible is split up into two sections. Basically, two-thirds or three-quarters of it is what we call the Old Testament, and then a little bit at the front called the New Testament. And to simplify a breakdown um, that is a little bit nuanced, more nuanced than I'm going to make it, but the Old Testament is about a people. It's about a, a people who um, are uh, the, the nation of Israel, the, the, uh, a people who, who believe that they were the chosen nation of God to kind of represent Him to the world. And then you have the New Testament, which is about a person. Uh, which is about Jesus and the, the, uh, the church kind of trying to figure out what do we do in light of a person that we, Uh, had lunch with and were friends with and watched as he performed miracles and and did things. So about a people and about a person. uh, And specifically, when it comes to about a people, you have a lot more things in terms of governance. You have a lot more uh, decisions about what it takes to function as a society for them, which is why you have rules and laws and edicts and books of wisdom and processes and systems of sacrifice and a lot more nitty-gritty details about how to do life, because they were just attempting to try and figure out life post-slavery Egypt and what it means to live amongst each other without killing each other. And um, so a lot more government stuff. And so when it comes to leaders and open letters to um, people in positions of authority... Uh, we see these show up in the Old Testament, not necessarily in the New. So we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. So um, we've talked about kings, we've talked about other things, but today we're talking about a guy named Joseph and uh, the letter or the advice that he offers to a a person in power. This time it's a, a person who we know only as Pharaoh, and we don't know historically which Pharaoh this was. We just know this person was in charge of all of Egypt, and Joseph finds himself in this way. But first... Before we dive into Joseph and Pharaoh, I want to talk real briefly or set the stage for us by talking about the problem with money, the problem with money. My brother-in-law sent me an article this week called Two Worlds, So Much Prosperity and So Much Skepticism, Um, and it talks about the current economic state that we find ourselves in with the pandemic. I mean, if you've watched the news lately, you know the economy is like not supposed to be good, but then the stock market's good, your retirement's good, but like you look around the community and you're like, that business seems to be closed and I don't know if they're coming back. And it's like this weird, stuff just doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up right now. There seems to be lots of speculation, lots of whatever. Anyways, um, in this, uh, this author um, talks about this, the two concepts to his essay, the prosperity piece and then the skepticism piece. What do we do with what is apparent uh, prosperity? And then what do we do with the idea that maybe this is two different worlds that we're looking at? Um, he breaks it down, this prosperity portion, into three different categories. and And I'm going to illustrate for you a little bit about some things that probably you've thought about or, or, or have felt, and yet you, maybe you've never seen the numbers to this. First is is this idea of income. Here's what the income has looked like uh, since January of 2019 in the average American household uh, based on Trillies. Not your personal household and definitely not your pastor's, but certain uh, <laughs> people's households. Look at this this number, this income number, this spike, um, because what happened is, um, we, we got into, we got a stimulus thing, and we also had no place to spend our money, everybody. We were not traveling, we were not buying, we were not dry cleaning any clothes, we were not impressing anybody with our truck. Uh, we were doing nothing but watching Netflix, and Netflix only cost twelve ninety nine a month, and that's not a lot. And so what happens is our income has shot, shot up dramatically. Americans made a trillion dollars more from March to November of 2020, than they did from March to November of 2019. <clears throat> uh, 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 households as a whole, a trillion dollars more year over year from March to November from the years. A lot of the surge came from stimulus packages and payments and unemployment benefits. But private wages and salaries are back at a new high and so are average hourly earnings and weekly earnings. That's what we're dealing with with income. And maybe, maybe you felt that maybe you haven't. And this is just like, maybe that's nice for everybody else, but that doesn't feel like it for me. But perhaps you're sitting there going, you know what? It has been kind of an interesting piece. I haven't spent as much as I usually do. It's a good spot to be in. All right. Uh, Number two talks about this, this positive view of debt. Here's the picture of debt, household debt service payments as a share of income in terms of how much you make and your debt to income ratio. Uh, And look at this. It hits this this number in here and it goes and then it dives off here at at 2019. Credit card balances declined by more than $100 billion over the last year. Americans have less credit card today than they did in 2007, despite an economy that's 48% larger and has 30 million more people. And finally, personal savings uh, accounts. Here's what personal savings accounts uh, look like, this jump in terms of how much people actually had in reserves for some rainy day or whatever. The personal savings rate averaged 7% in the quarter century before 2020. Then COVID hit and overnight it went to 34%. It's since dropped to about 14%, which would have been a 50-year high before COVID. In other words, we've got a a percentage account that is on a 50-year high post-COVID. Um, American households have a trillion dollars more in their checking accounts today than they did a year ago. For perspective, they held 800 billion in checking accounts a year ago, so it's more than doubled in one year. Your savings account, if you're on average, has doubled. Now, it might make you feel depressed. For some of you, maybe you feel like that sounds about right. For others, I don't know. I don't know where you stand on all of this. I'm just saying, from a, from a standpoint, um, our nation is in a unique position right now. Now, He counters this picture of prosperity with a little bit of skepticism, which this might be more identifiable for you. Oftentimes, his his bullet points are people gauge their relative well-being based on those around them. We tend to figure out if we're doing good based on our friends sitting around a campfire going, how much do you have in savings? What does your retirement look like? How much did you make last year? What returns did you get on your 401k this year? And as long as it kind of stands relative to our numbers and a little bit higher, makes us feel like, you know, well, that's fine. If it's a little bit lower, we feel smart. We feel better about ourselves than than them because we're smarter with our money, whatever. I don't know. Historically, the people around you have been relatively similar to you. Uh, They lived in the same city, went to the same schools, worked at the same factories, and earned similar wages. But the internet and social media has allowed this comparative sort of thing, this comparative how's everybody doing? Because a lot of times, again, our our well-being is based on those we see around us. And now that our exposure to more people is in place because of the internet and because of social media, we tend to aggressively go after and and not look at maybe the people around us, uh, but like the the circle of who we compare ourselves, uh, it grows exponentially. And at the same time, the economic distance between these two people have sort of, ballooned in this way. And so for perhaps the reason that these numbers kind of throw you off a little bit or that, that you don't feel in this way is because who are you kind of comparing yourself to? Who are the people around you? Who are the people? What, what does this look like for you? Now, here's something that's been true our entire lives. And I say our, I'm, I'm 37. You might be older than that. It doesn't matter if you're alive right now, if you're still breathing this air, this has been true for you. We have what are called rich nation problems, okay? We are a rich nation and our problems are rich nation problems. Now, before I go into detail about what that means, let's take it from, that's a macro level look, okay? We we live in a nation with rich nation problems. Let's bring it down to kind of a micro level look. You've met people who have rich people problems. You're related to them. Your, 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 your cousins with them, uh, they're your parents, they're your grandparents who are on that side of they've worked their entire life. And now they come to you and try to like identify with you and be like, how was your week? Yeah, my week is bad too. My pool, my pool is broken. Can you believe that? Anytime a, a phrase starts off with my pool, that's a rich person problem. All right. Or yeah, my cabin flooded. Can you believe that crap? That's a rich person problem. You are dealing with rich. Per- my landscaper was late, right? Uh, my rental property is empty. Uh, my other car, right? Those are rich people problems. We can identify those. We sit there and we try and have you know, depending on where we're at, if we're, maybe we have a pool too or whatever. But we 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 sit there and we can hear them and be like, Do you realize? how nice it must be to have a problem with your pool. That would be a nice problem to have with your second car. Ah, yeah. My problem is I can't haul my camper with my current vehicle. (laughs) Ha! Sucks for you, huh? Can you imagine being in that spot? rich person problems. That's fine. I have rich person problems. You do too. I'm just saying we have them, right? So then let's translate that from the micro level and let's look at it at a macro level. It's really, it's really interesting, the debates that have raged recently uh, about, especially in this last election and depending on who you voted for and who you listened to, is healthcare a right or a privilege? And I'm not here to take a stance and you're not going to get who I vote for in this way. But that's a, listen, that is a rich nation problem. Are we going to give it to them for free or are we going to charge them a little bit for it? We're not asking, can we provide healthcare for people? It's like, how do we play this thing out? Or the debate recently is, six hundred dollars enough for a stimulus, or should we bump it up to two thousand? Guys, rich nation problem. Uh, this idea of uh, this living wage debate, and you know, how much should we pay for the uh, entry-level workers and, and minimum wage, and all this—that's kind of, a that's a rich nation problem. I'm not saying I'm not coming to you with answers. I, I I don't really know. That's out of my. I'm not paid enough to know that kind of stuff, but. I'm just saying it's a rich nation, nation problem. We have 66% of Americans take prescription drugs. 131 uh, million of, of Americans take ri- prescription drugs. And it's like, how do we resolve this medical system? Well, that's, guys, that's a rich nation problem. We just, we just have it. I'm telling you. So with that in place, with us going, okay, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but we, we, we kind of realize, oh, no, I, I know, the fact that we're even talking about this means we, we, we've been blessed or whatever, right? And, and please... I, I enjoy living in a rich nation. I don't like the alternative, so I, I'm fine with that. I just, I just want the awareness of it. Because the awareness then leads us to the next truism of life, which is essentially this. In days of abundance, we have a tendency towards being undisciplined with our stuff in times of abundance, and you know this because you remember the alternative. You remember when you first got married or when you first graduated from college and you knew where every dollar went with your income, didn't you? Because if you didn't, your bank reminded you with overdraft fees. And so you would say, babe, if you spent that money, I, I just I just need you to write it down in the booklet because if we can't just be operating like this. That's really nice that your parents did that all, that whole life, but they're in a different season. We're in a season where we need to know where every dollar is spent. Now, that may have been five years ago for you. That may have been 50 years ago for you. But you were—you probably at some point in time probably remember a season where things were so tight you were disciplined in that area. And then what happens is you find yourself in a season of abundance. And perhaps now you go, here's our goal. Just try not to spend more than we make. That's all we wanna do. I just wanna see it grow in a little bit. What number? I don't know, I don't care. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna have a specific number in mind. I just want to be careful, right? And then maybe you get to the spot where you're not even careful anymore. You're so undisciplined, you're like, whatever, man. Life is what it is, and I just got to do what I got to do. But in times of abundance, we have this lean towards being undisciplined. Now what happens in in life is Mint or some sort of financial software or something sends you an email every month that says, hey, do you want to know where your money went this month? And you're like, nah, I don't want to know. I don't want to see that number. You want to know how much you spend at Starbucks? Ah, just, it's fine. I'm, it's, listen, I got an addiction. It's fine. It's whatever, right? So it's good. <clears throat> now, with the rich nation problems, uh, there's a unique sort of leadership required to lead well at that level. In times of abundance, there's a tendency towards a lack of discipline And there is a call to a certain type of leader that thrives well or excels in those certain scenarios that may not thrive elsewhere. Today, we're going to look at the story of a leader who led a nation with rich nation problems. And and my proposal would be this. Listen, um, President, you know, you're coming in. This is a rich nation, okay? And you're going to have to lead differently based on the fact that you're leading a rich nation. And, and uh, there's going to be some things that we're gonna, are going to be expected of you that maybe wouldn't be expected in, in some other way. It takes a special kind of leader to lead in this kind of situation. And a leader who says, to summarize, and I'll, get, I'll give you my thesis and I'll try and build a case for it, but my top priority is not to please you, but to lead you. A leader who is committed to saying my top priority is not to please you, but to lead you, to lead you well. And we know this as parents because at some point you, you've looked at it and you've seen parents who, who do everything to please their kids but not lead them well, and you thought to yourself, "I don't ever want to be like that." And and you, you've you've come to your kids who have gotten, who had more than you ever had growing up. And there's a tendency towards being undisciplined in that way. And you bought a big house because you thought you needed a big house, but then you realize this is affecting the, like how my kids think, and they think that everybody should live in everybody, every kid should have their own room and their own playroom and their own this and their own. I don't know, stuff. And you're going, listen, I have to make some decisions. I, we could do more. I, I, you could, I could have bought so much stuff for you for Christmas, and it wouldn't have probably affected the bank account or whatever. But listen, I, I cannot do everything that just pleases you. I, I've got to be a, the type of parent who leads you well. And it's not always about pleasing you and saying yes every time you have a request to go somewhere or do something or buy something or whatever. I need to lead you. Well, so that's the kind of all right. So, so we, we we've said that that's a origination problem. It requires origination leader. But then there's also a lens for us going. I know I don't feel rich. I can talk to you about how you know my pool, my landscape, my this. You are, and and you need to kind of read this open letter through this lens of maybe there's something here for me. Is kind of i, I move in this direction. So we're gonna be looking at a story that comes out of the book of Genesis, easiest book in the Bible to find because it's the first one. You don't even have to know anything about it. You just over the first couple pages and you're there. Um, it, it, Genesis opens with the creation story in Genesis, uh, like the first few chapters of Genesis, and then it goes uh, quickly into this call of Abraham or Abram um, out of this land of Ur and into this new land. I'm going to make you into a people, and then it immediately goes into this idea of this is going to be about a people. Um, Abraham has a son named Isaac uh, at late in life, um, and this promise of I'm going to make you into a mighty nation ends with him having one son, which is like not really a it's not even like a big table at Starbucks or something like that. It's not, a, it's not a big nation at all. You don't have to change vehicles for one kid, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, then Isaac ha- has a, a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They would go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel, if you're familiar with kind of Old Testament theology. but um, And Jacob then uh, has 12 sons, but with a couple of different wives. And so because of the couple of different wives, he plays favorites with some of his kids, which is like the big no-no of parenting. You're not supposed to play favorites. Um, I found that out. And so... Um, <laughs> he has a favorite. He gives his son, uh, Joseph, uh, who is the daughter of his favorite wife, which you're not supposed to have favorite wives either, <laughs> which also it brings into some, I have a favorite wife because I have one. He had more. So anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, another another story, another time. Uh, he gives him this coat that's got many colors, which represents like the, the, the best gift of all, right? And the brothers have some issues with that because they're like, they don't like a dad who has favorites. Uh, and so to punish the dad, they punish the son and and they they come together and they're like, let's kill him. No, let's not kill him because that seems violent. Let's throw him in a pit. We'll sell him to some some traders who are coming by. Some people who basically are just you know roving uh, uh, people who 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 just come to each section and trade. And so we'll sell him into slavery there, and then and that'll be the end of it. Um, through the process of being sold into slavery, he's then sold from there to somebody named Potiphar who is in Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's kind of leadership realm. He's a, he's a bigwig in, in the Egyptian government. Uh, Potiphar uh, has a wife who falls in love with the pool boy, aka Joseph. She makes a, a move on the pool boy, and he rejects her uh, immediately. Which uh, you know, a scorned, a scorned woman in that way uh, has some 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 thoughts on that. He um, hijinks and Sue. It's very days of our lives. This, if you haven't, if you're interested in that, if you like that kind of stuff, you would love this story. Um, as a result of not. Responding to Potiphar's wife the way that she would want it to. She makes up a story, a lie about how he pursued her. He ends up in jail for this. While, and I'm speeding through so much, but I'm trying to set up a story for us. While he's in jail, there's other people who come in and out, and, and one of them has a dream, and Joseph interprets this dream for him and basically saves his life. And um, it, it, he proves that he's got this skill of dream interpretation, or he's just a really good counselor. Tell me your story. I'll tell you what this means, Right? and uh so he tells this story and interprets this thing and then the guy finds himself in a back in back restored in the leadership position that he had and part of it was the wisdom that he took from joseph's interpretation of his dream and so his words to joseph as he leaves and as he walks out the jail is man you saved my life i'll never forget you and uh it's like the cliche plot line you can almost read you want to guess what happens next forgets Joseph, right? Doesn't remember who he is whatsoever. It goes; It's years later um, now. Joseph's been struggling in this dungeon in the cell as a prisoner or whatever. Then the pharaoh, the king, the uh, maharaja, the whatever, uh, the ultimate dictator, leadership, authority figure in Egypt at that time has a dream, brings together all of the people who are on his payroll and says, interpret this dream for me. They're supposed to be wise. You're supposed to be counselors. You're supposed to be you know, people who can do this kind of thing and nobody has a response. They're all too afraid. And the reason they're afraid is because if you get it wrong, it's off with your head. And so they go, yeah, that's really interesting. We, uh, we'll we have to think about it and get back to you on that. And nobody does. And so he's frustrated with them. He begins to say, can anyone in Egypt interpret this dream that I have? Because he's shook. There's something in him that's like, I had this dream and I can't shake it. I feel like something ominous is about to happen. And I would, and, and it By the way, their religious culture had very much to do with kind of dreams and and visions, and and that was part of it. And so uh, this would be something for him, like he believed this at the core of his being. Something anonymous is about to happen. I need wisdom to be able to interpret this and move forward with this. And does anybody know anybody that could offer any help in this way? And the person who Joseph had interpreted the dream for before goes, oh man, I know a guy. I know a guy. There was this guy I met once. He's actually in jail still, 12 years later. 12 years later. I remember this guy, though. He interpreted these dreams, and he, he helped me out. And, and the, reason, the only reason I'm here today is because of what he said about me. Verse 14 of chapter 41. Finally diving into some text. Sorry for the speed to get there, but I didn't want to waste too much time there. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, right? Because when you're coming from a dungeon, that's what, what you're at. He came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, "I had a dream. Nobody seems to want to interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it." And then he goes to begin to tell him about his dream. He he recounts for him this vision that he had. I fell asleep, and then what I saw was like seven fat cows, and they were all eating and they were happy. They looked like happy fat cows. And then all of a sudden, these really skinny, nasty cows came out, like mangy, and there were seven of them as well. And then they ate the fat cows. I know it sounds crazy. They ate the fat cows. You've had crazy dreams too, so let's not judge. Anyways, they ate the fat cows, but you wouldn't even know that they ate the fat cows because they were still skinny. And then I woke up. What do you got for me? And you're like, uh, oh, I got another one. Pharaoh says, I got another dream. Let 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 me tell you about this one. In this one, there were stalks of wheat. And uh, seven of them, and they were big and thick and plentiful and, and gorgeous and, and, you know, at the, at the height of their ripeness, ready to be plucked or ready to be grounded into grain or whatever. And then I saw seven nasty ones that looked like they'd been run over and were inedible and just basically just waste. And yet those ones kind of overcame or they ate up the healthy grain and you wouldn't even know it based on looking at them. And these seven, one, these seven mangy ones were the only ones left. What, what, do, you, what do you got for me? What, what, what am I thinking of? What's, what, is, what are the gods trying to tell me with these two different types of dreams? Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And he goes on to interpret it. He's, he's, he says this, there's going to be, from this point forward, God. Now you you would say the gods, but he would say Joseph comes from uh, again a history of uh, a singular God um, through his people through the the God I believe who called Abraham out of Ur and into the wilderness. Um, is trying to tell you the most high God, as Daniel would say later on, um, is trying to tell you that there's going to be seven years of positive growth. There's going to be seven years of a bull market, followed by seven years of a bear market, and yet the pain is going to feel much worse than the abundance. The seven years are going to feel really good, but the seven bad years are going to be so bad, you're not even going to remember the seven years of good, which is actually, interestingly enough, if you read up on behavioral economics, a like truism of us in life, when we lose a hundred, you a hundred thousand, <laughs> if you lost a hundred thousand, that'd be a bad day. If you lost a thousand dollars on the stock market, like that sucks emotionally because you made a bad decision. You sold and it went up higher, you bought and it went down low or something like that. You, you live with that guilt or so, or maybe you, had a hundred dollars in your wallet and you lost it and you just don't even know where it went. It sucks so much more than finding a hundred dollars. It's literally from a behavioral economic standpoint in our brain, exponentially worse to lose it than to gain the exact same amount. So when he says, listen, there's going to be seven years, but these seven other years, the second half, it's going to feel so much worse than this. He's just talking about the human brain, how it operates, and just the reality of this. Verse 29, seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Then all of the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and famine will ravage the land. And again, nobody will recall how good it once was. And so Joseph says, I have some advice for you. Here's what I think you should do based on my interpretation of this dream. And here's the open letter to the leader of this time, The open letters to our president. Here's, here's what you should do to lead. Because you have rich nation problems, here's what a good leader does in this scenario. Let Pharaoh, verse 33, look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth, 20% of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Now, based on kind of what we think we know about this scenario, there was already some sort of a tax just for living there, but this is an increase of tax, a 20% increase. And whether that means instead of 10%, which is probably what he was taking, um, it goes to 20, or if it's 10, an additional 20, we don't really know. But there's some sort of an additional additional tax that is going to be placed on the people during this time of abundance. And nobody nobody likes their taxes raised. I don't care who you vote for. Nobody wants, you're not excited when you get the little postcard in the mail. It's like, hey, your taxable revenue on your house is exponentially more. You're like, you're not like, oh good, our house is worth more. Well, you see that and you go, well, that sucks. I got to pay more taxes now, right? And imagine like, the proposals that come in with this, and then what are the motivations for it? Because that's all of, always our question whenever we see an increase in taxes. W- what is this going towards? Well, we're gonna put a new fire station in. Well, our school needs a new gym. Well, we need to, you know, okay, all right, there's justification there for some of that stuff, right? But in this case, what's the ju- why are we raising taxes? Well, I had a dream, and it was a bad dream. So we're gonna raise taxes. So let me get this straight. You're raising our taxes by 20% because you had a bad dream? I just want to get this down on paper. That's what you're saying? I had a dream? Like, that's a, it's a MLK weekend. I thought there would be some connection there. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. I, I tried to make it work, but it doesn't. Um, so remember, in, this days, uh, in days of abundance, we have a tendency towards being undisciplined. This is true for us. It was true for them in this way. And what he what. Pharaoh is being encouraged to do by Joseph is to enact a form of discipline that is not disciplined by choice, but disciplined by force. We're going to force you to save for the future. Why? Because there's an asymmetry of information. We think we know more information than you do about the future, right? Now, whether that's because it's an actual dream, I mean, whether you believe that that's a true asymmetry of information because it was based on kind of the emotional of a dream and, and intangible in that way. I get it, but they're operating as if we know more than you do. So, therefore, we're gonna make some decisions that aren't gonna make sense to you in your current context. We're gonna ask that you trust us. We're not gonna do what pleases you, we're gonna do what's best for you. And you're not gonna like it in the short term because nobody likes their taxes raised, especially. When the motivation is because you had a dream, a bad dream in this way. Verse 35. Joseph continues with his advice. They should collect all the food, this person that you put in charge, they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and to be kept in the cities for food. That's kind of an interesting piece because um, he wants it to to not have like this central Federal Reserve fund, but you are going to keep it in all the different cities so it can be accessible later on to everybody without sort of distribution issues. The problem with keeping it within the cities is it's very visible that it's right there, Right this food should be held and reserved for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. And the solid life advice that's being offered in this way is don't fall into the trap of making decisions only in the now, right? Right? which is good advice no matter, I mean, it's January, you're probably trying to make some good financial moves and whatever, but this is good advice now, and this is what's happening here. There's going to be an abundance, and you're going to think to yourself, good, I can finally buy that thing that I want. Good, I can finally do this stuff that I need to do, right? There's a story that Jesus tells his parable, this guy's got more money, he knows what to do with, and he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger silos so I can store more stuff. You know what I need? A bigger garage, that's what I need. I've got more cars than I know what to do with. What should I do? Should you sell the cars? No, Let's let's just expand the house, right? That's one way of thinking about it. In this way, he's saying, don't fall into the trap of making decisions only in the now. Basically telling the people, listen, you are gonna begin to see full grain silos within your community, because we want to have it close so that everybody can have access to it when we need it immediately. And you're going to see those continue to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. And they're going to get more full and more full and more full. And you are going to be making so much. Now you're not going to be hungry because it's seven years of profitability and excess and, and all of that stuff. So it's not that, but there's going to be something in you that goes, man, I just feel like we could spend that differently. Like we're doing great. Why would we need that? Why would we need that? That feels a bit rash, right? That's what they would say the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. And so in verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, and you kind of see this coming part as part of the story too. Since God has made all of this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 41, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. I love this because he's just spent the last 12 years in a dungeon. And then 20 minutes later, after shaving his face, he probably has shaving cream still on his face. And Pharaoh's giving him the second position to the entire land. Hey, You do all the work. I'll still be the head face of it, but everybody listens to you. Let everybody hear. Joseph's now in charge. He's now the boss. And they're like, this kid was in chains 20 minutes ago. This is crazy, right? Anyways, he he recognized in this moment a tough manager principle. I need to put my best guy on the biggest opportunity. I need to put my best guy on the biggest opportunity. And I'm telling you what, I don't know what kind of industry you've been a part of, but that is really tough to do. That's a really difficult spot to be in. I need to put my best guy, not the guy who's been here the longest, the person who's worked here the longest or whatever. I need to put the best guy in the biggest opportunity. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. And he had a lot to lose, by the way. Because if, if this happens and seven years goes by and then all of a sudden the, 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 the train keeps going up, everything's going up and to the right and he stored all this grain, it's kind of like, man, now it's going bad. We could have used this. Like, his, he's still, I think, he's got to be so confident in the fact that this is going to take a downturn or else this could turn out bad for him. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Why? Because again, in times of abundance, our discipline falters a little bit in this way. And in this scenario, the economic price of grain should have plunged. But because of the taxes, it probably didn't. It probably held steady. And the seven years of abundance came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said, verse 53. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. And again, famine feels like... um, we don't really know what famine feels in America. Um, like, Winco might be out of the bread that you like. And that sucks. But they're not out of bread. You know what I mean? You mean I got to buy this one? That's a dollar more. They, they might be out of certain products, but they're not out of food. This, that's famine in this way. Famine occurs in all of the other lands. There's no grocery stores to go to. There's nothing to eat and there's nothing to eat. You know how hungry, hangry you get when there's nothing to eat? Imagine it being just everywhere all at once. When all of Egypt begin to feel, I love this line. When all of Egypt begin to feel the famine. When you feel it, right? Cuz we know that You've been, some of you have been around long enough to know what a bear market feels like, the downturn possibly of 2000 or the housing crisis or whatever, 2007, and you begin to feel it. Like, everybody feels it. Even Even now in our community, like, you walk around, you see some businesses, especially some restaurants, and you go, I kind of feel, I feel it. I feel the pain or the, the, the hard nature of kind of how this is all playing out. Like, there's a, there's a feeling that's associated with this. The people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, "Go to Joseph, do what he tells you." When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt and all the world. All the world, verse 57, all the world came to buy Egypt, came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. In this scenario, then, the next part of the story is that Joseph's brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, come in from Israel because they're experiencing famine. And there's this like, spot where Joseph gets to like, stand before his brothers. They don't even recognize him. And they're like begging for his food. And he's like, you sold me into slavery. Let's see what I could do here, right? And so it's, it's an interesting thing, but it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. So we're going to fast forward a couple of chapters. Genesis, uh, we'll close with this. Uh, Genesis chapter 47, verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. He brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before our eyes? Our money is all gone. We're out of money. Then bring your livestock, he said. I'll sell you food in exchange for your livestock. Now, there's part of this story You're like, it feels a bit like there's... Some problems with this, right? He's like taking all their money then he's taking all their livestock and he's eventually going to take all their land. Everything's going to be under Pharaoh. And you're like, that feels like some lack of ethics and morality involved in this. I know it's a, compl- it's a complicated story in this way, but there's something at the end that I think is really important. I'm not here to justify his actions entirely. I'm just saying. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. He gave them food in exchange for their horses, sheep, and goats, their cattle, donkeys. He brought them through that last year with food in exchange for all of their livestock. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you food, or bought you and your land uh, today for Pharaoh, here's seed for you to plant the ground. So now he's kind of responding. And he's giving them some seed to kind of restore the economy. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths, you keep a seed for your fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. This is their comment. You have saved our lives," they said. "May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord." Looking back on it, we realize now we're in a position. It's taken us years to get here. We were bitter that you held it out for us. We were bitter watching these grain silos go when we could have done more. We were super bitter when you said we're going to raise taxes because Pharaoh had a bad dream. Um. We were angry when things took a downturn, and we ran out of our personal savings and needed to come to you for help. Um, We were kind of like bitter. Now you're taking our livestock and everything else. Um, All of that, but in looking back on it through the perspective of the distance from the moment, we we have an inclination to make decisions in the now. You led in such a way that helped us realize years later you really did save our lives. We would not have survived as a nation. It would have been better in the short term. Life would have been great. The price of grain would have plunged, but we would have all had so much excess. We would have put on weight and all this kind of, whatever. I don't know. But we realize now those tough decisions that you forced on us early on saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. When faced with a crisis, with an asymmetry of information... Meaning he really did feel like he knew more than they knew about this. His goal was not to please them, but to lead them with the future in mind. Read that again. When faced with a crisis, with an asymmetry of information, he knew more than they did. His goal was not to please them, but to lead them with the future in mind. He ignored public opinion for the sake of the public he taxed to save, he did not tax to spend, he did not let personal prejudice blind him to good advice. How easy would it have been for him to have this person come up, this, this foreign, you know, alien to their land come in and say, here's some financial advice, I think this is gonna happen, be like, who are you? Who are you to tell me what's gonna happen? Like, it's fine that you think that, but like get out of here with that. Smart enough to take advice and to listen to somebody who was unlike him. And to affect things differently than that. Listen, if we could write a letter to our incoming president and say, "Here's some things," an open letter in this way, I think part of it would be for me. We have a very rich nation. We're in a unique scenario. The slides, the three slides that we saw earlier, through stimulus packages going out, through through all this kind of stuff. Um, like we have rich nation problems, even how we deal with healthcare and, and living wages and, and, and everything else. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind that there is an asymmetry of information. You wouldn't know that by reading Twitter. You would think that I know just as much as the president or everybody else does too. And we all have opinions on what he should do or how he should think or how he should operate. But there is no doubt in my mind that there are more things going on behind the scenes that I don't know about, all right? So with an asymmetry of information, and whether that, that's good or not, I mean, I, I don't know. All I'm saying is, with that in place, my one request would be, would you do what you know and what you think is right? Would you, would you maybe perhaps force us to, to, to live more disciplined or um, make decisions that aren't in line to please us in the moment, we have a tendency to think in the moment. Your approval rating is based on the moment. Would you just freaking disregard daily approval ratings? Would instead you do things so that years later we might look back and be like, I think in the moment I didn't like the, the things that they asked me to do. But the approval ratings of of posterity mean more than the approval ratings of the moment. Would you lead in such a way that you're not doing things just to please us, but to lead us well? And I I don't even know if we would elect somebody (laughs) like that. Like, I don't know if we are comfortable enough as as voters as a nation to, like, actually believe that. Maybe we are. Um, Maybe that's just wishful thinking in this way. But wouldn't it be refreshing for a president not to blame external circumstances for his or her inability to lead, but instead would say, there's a way out of this, but you might not like it, but I'm asking you to follow me, and that sort of leadership. Now, I want that in my president. I also want that in the way that you lead, in the way that I lead, in the kind of parents we are, in the kind of coworkers we are, that we would look for not the things that bring immediate pleasure and immediate approval ratings but instead, we would live well, because I think that that just matters so much more. Um, and I want to believe, and I want to train my kids to to understand, listen, um, I know like curfews and this and screen time. Like it doesn't make much sense to you, but I need you to trust that there's an asymmetry of information. I too was once a 16-year-old kid. I know that you don't need, nothing good happens after midnight. You should be home. You know what I mean? Um, And Maybe that's just me preaching my moralism. I don't know. All I'm saying is I I believe that there's an asymmetry of information and can we be the type of people who refuse to be bogged down in the decisions and the limitations of the now May we understand and believe that in excess, we have a tendency towards a lack of discipline. And would we, instead of trying to lead in in a matter of pleasing people, um, would we make decisions that lead our family well, that lead our business well, that lead our personal lives, our discipline, our health, our personal health, our personal finances? Would we not get so locked into the moment, but instead take a picture that we could look back seven years from now and go, eight years from now, 10 years, I don't know, whatever, and say, that sucked then, but it was the right call. I know it was. Let's pray. Father, our our prayer is that um, somehow that our political leadership would have that, um, both on a local level, on a federal level, or whatever. I pray that we would have that locally in our own households, um, in our own places of business, in our own uh, uh, arena of authority that, w- that we have, the lens and the perspective that we have on this. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our everyday life, the courage to act on it and put it into uh, actual action in your name. Amen.